Shalom, this is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ilah, a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a Rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. everybody. Welcome to RZ Weekly, your weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and pretty much everything in between. I am Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Harav Johnny Solomon. Harav Johnny, welcome back. You were away last week. I hope all is well. All is well. Thank you very Baruch much. Hashem. Rabbi Johnny is a teacher at Midrash Linbaum, MTVA, and Matan. He's an editor at Mosaic Press a virtual rabbi, and an independent Jewish education consultant. He writes on Dafyomi. He serves as a postdoc, and he also plays the piano. Quite talentedly, <laughs> I must add. If you follow his Facebook page, every now and then he'll send you a little gem playing piano. Uh, I was actually playing yesterday, just today. I'm trying to... Do you ever do any Facebook lives if you just I play? I, used to, I did that once or twice. People like it. I don't know. Anyway. You guys should play. We should have like an RZ Weekly musical. Um, ah, um, Okay. Um, and then we are with our Rabbi Mali Bravsky, who I'm having a little trouble hearing, maybe in her volume. Is she talking into her maybe microphone? This is better? Much better. Okay. Uh, hello, Rabbi Mali Bravsky. How are you? Hello. How are you? Okay. Rabbi Mali Bravsky is a Jewish educator specializing in Tanakh and Machshavat Israel. She's a clinical social worker with a private practice in Gush Sion, as all of you know from our discussion last week. For the current year, she's serving as a field advisor for YU's Wurzweiler School of Social Work in Israel. She's also a Jewish educator and is in the process of writing an article about, <laughs> about uh, the lack of social services in Yeshivot Hezder. How's she's the article not, coming along, Molly? It's not coming along. I do not want to write it. Sorry. Well, you I don't want it to be written like or writing. you don't feel like writing? No, I want it to be written. I just don't like writing. You can I, actually... I, I told I, you I I'm going to hack you and this is going... We're going to have to come back to I wrote. I actually wrote a piece somewhere that people can look up on when they were talking about why women are published less than men. And I said, maybe women don't want to write. I don't like writing. This is not an essay. It's not an academic art essay. It's a 600-word article. I'm just saying, I don't want to write 600 All right. Words. I am Ruben Spolter. I'm the director of the Remoning <laughs> Teacher Training Program at the Herzog College in Israel, also in Alon Shavut, and the Shorashim representative of Tsohar for English-speaking countries, and the founder and director of Kita.org, the Jewish online classroom for families. If you have a family and your children are not studying in Jewish day school, you should probably reach out to me. We've got an amazing program. Okay, um, we're going to start with mailbag. Mailbag, ding, 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 ding. Uh, Molly, 
Would you please share? We have two messages. Would you please share the first one from who is it from? From yeah, she gave us permission from Shira Wendy. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. And here we go. There you okay, go. This was about okay. This this was about our discussion about um, politicians and religion. Thank you for the interesting discussion this week. I just wanted to comment on a side point that was raised in the podcast, um, Johnny. This is a point that you made. Uh, about politicians reconsidering and changing their minds on various issues. Yes, it is a wonderful characteristic to be open-minded and willing to take new evidence or experiences into account and reevaluate your position. But I think a politician is in a different category to a private individual in that respect because their decisions represent public opinion and not just their own. They are in their role due to the voters who elected them because of their convictions and policies. The politician goes on a journey and reevaluates. That's great on a personal level. But that doesn't mean the electorate has been on the same journey and it doesn't give him the right to act on his newfound condition. I think this was very clearly seen in Sharon's 180-degree turn on Gush Katif. I will also give an example. This is me, Molly, not Shir winning. Um, uh, Yitzhak Rabin on the Golan, right? When a politician changes his mind on a significant issue which form part of his platform, that should be grounds for calling new election, not that we need more. Good point, Shira. I just thought that was a very good point. Um, yeah. You know, that people can change their minds, but if you make campaign promises and people... Um, vote for you based on your policies, um, it's a little bit different than mashiro in mikan, lower imishan, which is what politicians always say, right? The view is different from here, which is legitimate, and there's a piece to that, but I think she was making a very good point. I think the, I, I actually agree with her, but then again, disagree, because politicians have showed us again and again and again that their promises mean nothing. So therefore, you better, if you're going to vote for somebody, vote for somebody you trust, and if you don't trust them, and if they have a history of sort of, I don't know, uh, bending to the to the times or changing or maybe the politician is most interested in their own advancement or what they care about most then uh, don't vote for them right but our point is that be caron um we should be able you know like the whole point is you vote based on policy and position and so there's there's kind of an intrinsic responsibility to um try to hold to your positions yeah her point is don't, well i don't know what you do mm -hmm. you know yeah okay next mailbag uh, this is from another listener who asked actually a question we want to respond to. I'm just not going to name her because we didn't ask her if we could. Hi, I found your podcast on mental health in Yeshivot has there important. Uh, this is me speaking. Thank you. Do you know if Irguni for Shavu Lumi are asked slash required to provide emotional support for the usually girls under their umbrella? So I can say if the, if the question is required, the answer is most certainly not. I'm, I, I know that there, the, each girl has a madricha. And the, madri the madrichot are supposed to be in touch with each girl and know about their well-being. And the madrichot generally, I mean, for the most part, there are some better, some worse, but they are aware of the situation of each of the girls on the one hand. But with regard to emotional support, and you're talking about professional, mental health professional, in my experience, we didn't see that. At, I didn't, we didn't have the need for it, but I, I have worked with Shibutlumi, and I have not seen that at all. Molly? Yeah, I agree. Um, there, there's definitely support, usually, depending on the, the placement, uh, to a greater or lesser degree, a rakhazet, or if they're in a garin, um, but there's no formal mental health professional in place by either by the specific position or by the organization that sets up girls for Shirat Lumi, as opposed to in the army, where there actually is a um, kaban, a katsin bruta nefesh, um, there, there actually is a mental health um, address in the army. So that's the answer to that question, and it's actually an interesting point to ponder in terms of which type of program will provide the most support for your daughter. Um, and it, I think if your daughter is going to shoot with me as my daughter did, I think this is something to think about, which is how holding is the environment she's going, how much holding does she need, how much holding is the environment that she's going to, and kind of choose wisely. 
Johnny, you have any mm -hmm. uh, comments? You have you have you have girls in shape with Lou and me, correct? Girl, girls. No, she's well. My my eldest is starting next year, uh, and so we're learning a lot about it. <laughs> this conversation is very much relevant. Um, so I can't comment in terms of our lived experience yet. What I do know, though, is that uh, the women that we've met who have served or are serving in short of me often do experience various pressures in whatever they're doing and that are often felt isolated, especially if they're living far away from home, uh, doing things with, with a, a group that they're not so familiar with and having some kind of formal framework to support them is very valuable, uh, very necessary, and I've certainly seen in my local community how that's lacked and perhaps have added pressure to people doing good work but without the resources they would value and need. I actually, in light of what you just said, Johnny, I'm thinking we should probably do an episode on Shevut Lumi, bring in maybe a Shevut Lumi girl, maybe a professional, because if we talked about Yeshivat Hezder, that all our sons go to, all of our daughters go to, for the vast majority, many of our daughters go to Shevut Lumi. And as different from Yeshiva, which at least there's an environment and there's a Ram, in Shevut Lumi, the girls very often live on their own in these small apartments. Yeah. And it can make for, and they're in difficult situations, they're doing very, very hard work. It can make for, okay, we got to talk about this, and you know, we'll talk about when to, when to discuss it, I think. We should, we should revisit the issue in light of the email. So thank you very much. Send to us on our RZ Weekly Facebook page. So if you have other questions or comments, feel free to contact us there or email us or what have you. All right, let's move on to our next segment, which is called The Soapbox. Getting on our soapbox today is me. Okay, so um, I, I need like, I feel like we need to like develop like a, like a sound yeah. button. Stings, they're want, called yeah? stings. We need to, we, we, you need to, we need to go to your, your sound, um, um, guy. I already reached out to my sound guy. <laughs> He's like, what, today? <laughs> <laughs> but then somebody has to like stick it in. I don't have any idea how we would do that. How you like, do I just play it on my phone? I don't know. Like, I don't know how we do it. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I guess I could add it in. I could figure out how to do that. Anyway, um, so if you actually heard a musical introduction to this and our sound guy came through, if not, maybe next week. On my soapbox. So I received an email <laughs> from Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, president of Yeshiva University, where the, the email, title of the email was Yeshiva University Stands for Torah. Wonderful, lovely email. I actually sometimes read these things. That, you know, it's a PR thing about why use core Torah values. And while I think all the Torah values are wonderful values, uh, Rabbi Berman uh, listed them as the following. Emet, truth. Chaim, life. Adam, infinite human worth. Chesed, compassion and Sion, redemption. And, while, and he then had an explanation of why, why all of these values, how YU brings in the study of what, what, what Rabbi Berman calls Torah Emet, how YU brings all these Torah values to life. I'm going to focus just for a minute on what Sion. Now, first and foremost, Sion means Zion. It, and Zion, when you translate it, does not mean redemption. It's interesting, chesed, compassion, adam, human, Chaim, life, emet, truth. But when it comes to Tzion, for whatever reason, they didn't see the need or the desire to translate Tzion as Israel. So uh, instead, Rabbi Berman wrote the following. And our increasingly deep connections to Israel with Shana Ba'aretz, 
winter tech trips, summer internships, and learning programs highlight the centrality of Torah Zion. Our aspiration for each of our students to be leaders in the world of tomorrow speaks to our mission of moving history forward towards redemption. Now, under, and you, by the way, you can go to YU's uh, website, yu.edu slash about slash values, and you can see even uh, a broader expansion of this idea of these, of these values. He writes the following, I don't know who wrote it. The Jewish people's task is to build up the land of Israel into an inspiring model society representing this effort of microcosm. But it is part of a larger project that includes all of humankind. If the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, then redemption represents our responsibility to work together in the service of God to move history forward. Now, I'm all in favor of all those things. Uh, very nice values. Uh, I would say Rav Cook, in his Cookian vision of the world, envisioned Israel as a, as a laboratory to bring justice to the world. God willing, that should be. But that's not the definition of Zionism by any definition that I'm aware of. Zion represents Israel. And I would have expected Rabbi Berman, who I know personally and I respect tremendously, and I also know he's a passionate, ardent Zionist. And the reason I know this isn't because I know him well. It's because he made Aliyah. It's because he lives, he has a house in Israel. And so I would expect, I do expect, why you to come along and say, if Zion, if Torah Zion is part of your value of Torah, why you stands with the people and the, idea, and, the, and the nation of Israel, it sees Israel as a core Torah value and sees instilling this value as important for all of our students. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Instead, what I see is some kind, is like, is a, I don't even know how to say it, a, 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 a watering down that I've seen over many years on the part of YU towards the idea of Zionism. Just, just simple Zionism. You don't have to move to Israel. I think that it's complicated. But it's not, why should it be complicated to say, see, you know, Israel is part of our vision. Israel is part of our values and a connection. I mean, maybe it's Muvan Me'ilav. But I don't think it's Muvan Me'ilav. And I think it's especially not Muvan Me'ilav, self-explanatory, because why you doesn't say it. And they really don't say it in two ways. One, in these emails, which no, I guess nobody reads. But even more importantly, I think in some of the things that YU does. You say, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What about all the Shana Ba'aretz programs? So first of all, Shana Ba'aretz programs are very pragmatic and practical. Most of YU's graduates want to spend a year in Israel. So it's not like they're saying, oh, I want to go to YU, so I want to spend a year in Israel. It's a very nice uh, shidduch, but, uh, but I don't think that that's something that YU necessarily promotes. And yes, YU does have a summer program and this program and that program. But I find it fascinating that two things. One, YU doesn't have a semester program in Israel. You can't go to YU and say, I want to spend a semester studying in Israel. And Israel is the best laboratory for understanding what it means to be a Jew in the world today. To my mind, YU should say, if you didn't go on a Shanaba Aretz program, you have the option, YU has a whole campus, it's almost empty. We would like to make available to you to study a semester in Israel. The women can study in the fall semester, the men can study in the spring semester. And in the semester in Israel, a part of our core curriculum is going to be understanding Jewish state, Zionism, conflict, Jewish values, what have you. Go do an internship. A million different possibilities. You can go to NYU and do a semester in Israel, but you can't go to YU and do a semester in Israel. I, th I find that fascinating and interesting and Doresh Tikkun. And I think if YU did it, plenty of students would love to go to YU to take advantage of it. Because if you're thinking, should I go to Maryland or should I go to YU? Well, you know... Maryland is more exciting, more interesting, but maybe if I went to YU, I could go to a semester in Israel. That's one thing. The second thing is, uh, when I was, I don't know if any of you know this, I, I used to work for YU as part of the Gris Kola. When I first got here, maybe two, three years after I got here, I was brought into YU to do some kind of like once a week program. 
And I was able to sort of build a, a, a mini internship with the Gris Kolel fellows that those who were interested could actually do rabbinic training with shul rabbis in Israel. And the funding ran out and it died. But it was, it's always as a rabbinic musmach, and I, I don't know, the state in which there are the most musmachim of YU is obviously the state of Israel. It's always interesting to me that institutionally, other than fundraising, YU has no presence here in Israel and doesn't see any role in the state of Israel. At least from what I could see, especially training rabbis, placing rabbis, having a role in developing a smicha program for the people of Israel, having an institution in Israel, etc., etc. And I think that if that's their view, if Zion is just about redemption and they're waiting for Mashiach to come, I think history is going to pass them by. Because this is the future of the Jewish state. As uh, YU always said, the Jewish future, this, the center of the view of the future is the state of Israel. And I think rather than being ambivalent about it, I think it's time for YU to embrace it and for Rabbi Berman to, to uh, activate or his true personal values, which I know there are there, and to translate that into action for uh, YU's involvement and support of and connection to the state of Israel. All right, I'm, a, I'm done with my soapbox. So we, we, this is the first time we've ever done it. Um, that's, my, uh, that's my spiel. Do you guys want to respond or do you want to just let it go? Yeah, I do. I want okay, to respond. Okay, go ahead. I, I want to defend uh, um, Rabbi Berman, who, full disclosure, is, uh, is a cousin. Um, so there's the, you know, if, if I need that disclosure, it's out there. Um, I, 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 think, I think transforming the world, if Zion is the center of transforming the world, is actually a very powerful Zionist message. I agree with you that perhaps in this particular um, formulation, the, the like, um, you know, nationalistic element about the value of living in the state of Israel as the eternal homeland to the Jewish people is not there. But that could be. That's not what Ruby said. Ruby says it's not what he said. I'm just saying um, it, it could just be a crime of omission and not of commission, right? That like it was left, at, like, like you're complaining that something isn't being said, right? So I'm saying maybe it's because it's self-evident. And the other piece that I want to say is um, also I don't know how practical your ideas are because if you're going to let people do a semester, you know, so they're allowed to do a year and a semester. So then it's like they're just a semester for the people who I are said not specifically for people who don't come how many people Aris. how many people is that many many, many hundreds okay, hundreds each so year I'm sure there are technical issues with, with doing all that but the other point that I wanted to make about um, just my thinking about how diaspora Judaism relates to Israel um, is that like I think we I, I don't disagree that Zionism should be loud and clear and Israel should be it should be Israel centric but I also think that like I think that, the, that 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 when those of us who have made Aliyah have this sort of sense that, you know, why isn't there more speaking about Aliyah in communities that aren't in Israel? That's not Ruby Singh. That's not what he said. But I, 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 I'm just saying that I'm starting to appreciate the same way I appreciate... Um, I don't know, the, 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 the Zionists in Puerto Rico, who may be, or, or, or France, or, or any other country in the world, where, like, there's a Jewish community there, and they support Israel, and we're so happy for their existence because we want um, Jews who support Israel in diaspora communities, right? I think we should, like, but when it comes to America, we have this higher expectation from them. Why aren't you making, he's nodding, okay. I, I'm just saying there's this sense, like, why isn't the message more 
maybe you didn't mean. I don't know what you meant then. If you don't think that, like, it's like he didn't speak about Aliyah. What was missing for you? That's what I'm trying to understand. He didn't but speak. I'm, he tra- didn't, I'm sorry. I have to respond to your response. He didn't speak about Israel. He yes, our deep connection to Israel. He did. He did it, like yeah, he, he, he he talking about Israel in terms of redemption. No, talk about Israel in terms of the center for the Jewish people. We stand by the state of Israel. And we inculcate that value in our students. He said, Zion is redemption. It's not. That's okay, not but that. It, okay, fine. We don't have to get into the morass of this. I'm just saying that my one thought in response I'm not, I, is... I, I don't think you should say everybody should make Aliyah. I don't think any of that. I don't I, think I any think of we, that. I think he so should what, be proud you, of his Zionism. Of, of Zionism. I think he is. <laughs> I think he okay, is. Okay, I'm just reading what they say. I'm reading okay, how they yeah, translate Zion as a Torah value. I'm just saying, first of all, I think that that value is an important value. Putting putting Zion uh, as the heart of, of uh, Torah for the world and as a center for the for the world is a very valuable message. And I think that like um, when you're talking to a diaspora community, it's okay to talk to a diaspora community the way you talk to a diaspora community and, and to be proud of what they're achieving. Yeah, Johnny wants to say Yeah, that. please, Johnny, okay. So I, I think this is a really fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm not equipped uh, to directly comment about uh, Rabbi Dr. Berman or, or truth be told, even the attitude towards Israel from Yeshiva University, although if what you said, Ruby, has its merits regarding the lack of investment in terms of programs in Israel, notwithstanding the significant presence of YU graduates in by Israel. By the way, I, that, I'm sorry to interrupt because I'm sure that we're going to get schmeisted by like, people who work for YU in Israel. Like, why Israel I, I'm saying I don't about, know. Like, okay. what it, you know, they're going to say that's not true and we're very invested and you know, there are budgetary issues. I, I don't think it's fair to start attacking. I mean, saying YU is trying to actually be invested in Israel, but like, you know, I, I think we have to, you have to seriously ask practically what is it that you want them to do and if so, uh, I believe why I just said two it? things I wanted them to do. I, know, I wanted but I'm them to the invest they in don't, they're program not in doing Israel. those things are probably not because they don't believe in them they probably have uh, other considerations. Uh, I've spoken right, to I can just tell you from first knowledge I've spoken to many people inside of YU who've also pressured YU to do it and I think there are pressures that are not necessarily budgetary and I find it hard to believe that if YU really wanted to and made it a goal to uh, to bring more Israel education that they wouldn't be able to do it because of budgetary reasons. I find that hard to right. believe. So, so, uh, so, so just going back to my point, I, I'm making very clear that I am ignorant in terms of, of knowing what has been done and what is reality. And that's why in many ways I'm not going to comment. Although, as I said, if what you said has its merits, that does certainly raise some, some interesting questions as an observer of contemporary orthodoxy. But one thing I can comment, only because whilst you were talking, I pulled off one of the two books from the Orthodox Forum series about Israel. You know, that big series of interesting essays. So one was called Israel as a Religious Reality. I'm not going to comment about that. But the other one, uh, titled Religious Zionism, Post-Disengagement, Future Directions, which is a fine book in many ways, has three essays under the category called American Orthodox Education and Aliyah. And the reason I I just want to mention the titles of these essays, because they raise this tension. One, the first by Yol Finkelman, is titled Can American Orthodoxy Afford to Have Its Best and Brightest in Brackets Not Make Aliyah? Meaning, what that title alone, I'm just judging by the title, which is itself ridiculous, is we have this tension of we want people to have strong bonds and wish to move somewhere, but we also need to look after this very, very large Jewish community in North America. Um, the next essay t- by Binyamin Blau is titled Are the Right People Making Aliyah and Who Will Be the Teachers of Our Children? Reiterating that same point. And the third essay is titled 
the Aliyah threat to American modern orthodox by Seth Farber. Now, if just by judging by that title, those titles alone, and the fact that there are three essays with very, very overlapping messages. Two of whom made, made Aliyah, the, by the way. Two out of those sorry? three people. Two out of those three people made Aliyah. Right, I, I'm well aware. But nevertheless, what is it, what is it saying? What it, what it tells me is a, a book coming from an institution exploring its dynamic in terms of who it trains and relationships it, it has other than ideological, which I take for granted, I really do. Um, as do I, by the, the way. Of, as, as do I, totally. Right. It, it relates to, you know, where do we invest in terms of our primary population? And though we have populations that need fostering and nurturing and, and growing, and while Israel is a profoundly rich and ultimately the Jewish home uh, of the Jewish people, we too have responsibilities here in the States. And, and so, again, I can't comment about what has been, but nevertheless, what does seem to be a message from Rabbi Berman's uh, email, etc., which obviously mentioned this both emphasis on particularism but also universalism is, we want to strengthen and, and emphasize and acknowledge and celebrate our ties to Israel, but we want to recognize that we also have duties here and how we do that, and the language we use to do that, is what we're figuring out. Uh, and uh, I suspect that there is, there is meant to be nuance in what's being produced, whether that's necessarily evident for us as readers, that's questionable. But, it, it, you know, what is your mandate, right? And, and where do you invest in order to achieve that? And how you emphasize values without necessarily kind of distracting yourself from your responsibilities, that's a tough call, which I'm not, I'm, I don't earn the big bucks enough to answer it, but nevertheless, I think it's worthy to make mention of that, acknowledge that, and say that from my very limited uh, understanding, it, it's Muvan Melav, that Yeshiva University is a proud, incredible support of the state of Israel. I think it's, it's appreciated from people here when that's heard and said clearly, but nevertheless, it, it, you know, to see an institution there and, and understand what its orbit is and its emphasis and the language it uses and who is it talking to, uh, perhaps we need to know more before we comment. I have more to say, but I've said I was on my soapbox, so I'll, <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox and we'll come back with our real topic right after this. This episode of RZ Weekly is brought to you by Kita for Home Plus. We all know families whose children are not studying in formal Jewish education for any number of reasons. Could be COVID, could be the school wasn't right for them, could be financial, but they still are looking for a meaningful Jewish learning solution for their children. That's why we created Kita for Home Plus. Kita for Home Plus is modeled after the world-famous Khan Academy using flipped learning, YouTube videos, and Google Forms to allow children to learn classic Judaic subjects, Mishnah, Chumash, and Gemara, on their own time, on their own schedule, in a way that's exciting and meaningful for them to learn. We're starting a new semester of Kita for Home called Kita for Home Plus, in which children will learn three courses, Mishnah, Chumash, and Gemara, each week, plus have a Zoom lesson to meet with the teacher, that would be me, as well as interact with other students in the class. 
Time for Home lessons are designed for students in middle school from grades five through grades eight and focus on basic skills, decoding of text, understanding of shorashim, critical skills that children need that serve as a foundation for Jewish learning throughout their lives. To learn more, log on to kita.org slash home plus. That's kita, K-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G slash home plus. And now back to the show. All right, and we're back. So our second topic this week is the topic of Shemitah. That's what we really planned on talking about. Uh, Shemitah as it's observed here in Israel. So, uh, Rav Johnny, how's your Shemitah going? Shemitah, we're now in the middle of Mar Cheshvan. I think cucumbers became Asur today. The Rav announced that cucumbers are Asur this week. Not Asur. Now, cucumbers are, that are grown in Israel have Dushat Shvi'it. So, just take us through your, uh, imagine you were walking through uh, your local supermarket, the Rami Levy in your supermarket. You're about to buy vegetables. You just came from Chutzarets. Ne- somebody told you it's Shemitah. You're like totally overwhelmed, have no idea what to do. What are you going to see? What are you going to do? And how do you even make a decision? That's a great That's a big topic. I know people have delivered like lecture series on this. Uh, some, some of our listeners will know that I've been uh, involved with, my wife's been unwell and is involved in uh, treatment at the moment. So I actually haven't been in the supermarket for the past few weeks, which is rare for me. Um, and so I've, I've missed out on, on what's going on in terms of um, how things are being sold and kind of the energy of the marketplace, especially near the fruits and vegetables. Nevertheless, um, what, there are really three approaches to, to, uh, three approaches to Shemitah in, in contemporary Israel. And different places and different communities and different supermarkets adopt different policies. So you say you're going through a supermarket. So I'd say I'll, I'll give you one of three different types of uh, shopping experiences. There'll be some supermarkets who right now are only selling what we call Yuval Nochwi. That is to say, they're only selling produce that uh, is grown outside the borders of the biblical land of Israel. And you go in there, you buy things, you use them, you throw them away as you would any regular time and you'd barely notice it Shemitah. That's, that's one experience which is being lived in numerous communities. In those places, other than what you're growing in your garden or what you're receiving perhaps from other people, you will not necessarily notice it Shemitah um, uh, unless you have gardens and fields n- near where you are. Another experience is what many supermarkets do is which what they sell that is produce from fields which have been sold to non-Jews, which are then worked on by the original owners, uh, which uh, many poskim don't regard that produce as having. And if that's you, the truth is you buy your fruits and vegetables, you eat it, and you also don't really notice much of a difference because uh, while some people may take the view that we should treat that produce with Dushat Shvi'it. Many people uh, don't see that to be the case. And so your supermarket experience seems to be pretty much the same as it was a few months ago. And then there is the unique category called Otzalbetin, which is not a regular supermarket. These are stalls in general, although not exclusively, where 
fruits and vegetables are procured and they have absolute sanctity of, of Kedushat Shvit, just like one would have from their garden or you know, uh, vegetable patch. Uh, and that will have a bearing both in terms of how that is paid for, well, not quite how that is paid for, but, but the, the, the monetary exchange that's taking place, you're paying for the effort to get that rather than the produce itself. And any of that fruits and vegetables has to be treated with a, with a regular sanctity. By the way, I mentioned fruits and vegetables. It also includes in part flowers. Uh, which have, uh, in, at least in some cases, so whichever is your supermarket you go to and whatever their policy is will affect directly what's going on in your kitchen and what you need to do with the remnants of what you've consumed and uh, perhaps even the, the amount it costs you in order to procure those fruits and vegetables with Otzabetin generally being uh, a little dearer um, to reflect the, the the labor invested in getting it to wherever you are, which is different to the industrialized way that Yuval Nochri and Hetemachira operate. Johnny, what do you is choose? That? Yeah, what, what do you do in your family? Uh, we are comfortable. The word relying, by the way, I always find that strange, like relying as if to say, well, but we are comfortable with Hetemachira. So, so therefore, when you go, oh, there, there actually there's two kinds of Hetemachira. Hetemichira fine, or Hetemichira, I'm makbir on Hetemichira because I try not to eat Yuvul Nochri. Which one of those are you? Um, I, 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 I generally have an aversion to a deliberate policy of Yuvul Nochri. Meaning, you know, if, you, yeah, if one happens across produce which is important, which most of us do any which way, fine. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to support Hetemichira. However, what's interesting is in the past few weeks, uh, because of what's been going on in our home, uh, we've had uh, friends and neighbors bringing us food. Mm. And on occasion, those people have been using Otzabetin uh, uh, produce, and they'll, they'll come with big, big signs saying, you must, must treat this with Kedushat So wait, wait, for the, for the listener who doesn't have. live in Israel, what does that mean, treat it with Kedushat Shvi'i? What, what does that entail? They brought you chicken not, soup with carrots. They brought you, I don't know, like let's say chicken soup with carrots that are Otzabetin. I don't know if they're carrots or Otzabetin yet. So what do you have to do? So I, I was discussing this with my, with my kids because this was uh, relatively new to our table and they can't remember what happened last Shemitah. And I said, you know what we do with bread when we finish eating with it? They say, yeah, we kind of treat it with greater respect. You know, wrap it up uh, and don't throw it away in a regular way. I said, biduk. Uh, so for, that's what we do. We have a special area where we put the Kedushat Shviet remnants and... Uh, and, and, and get rid of it, but with, with a sense of um, oh, venerance. Do you have a pach shvi'it, or do you dispose we, of it immediately? <laughs> no, we, we didn't yet dispose of it immediately, but we do now have a pach shvi'it. Ah, yeah. So in our family, we've decided we're not doing the pach shvi'it because um, that causes a less respect for Kedusha. Rabbi Ramon writes about this. So we dispose of it respectfully each and every time. We can afford the plastic bag. Molly, what should we eat in the Brasky family? How's it going? So, so interestingly, like, like Johnny, um, in, if last Shemitah cycle, I think there was a lot of excitement around Kedushat Shvi'it. Um, we had our little Pach Shemitah and, you know, um, there was a sense that that was the way we were going. I think also Rav Weitman very much pushed I think he was the, like the, the father of Ozar Beitin and Ravimon. Um, and a lot of the Yeshivot kind of 
got very enthusiastic about it. Um, th- and I want to say, I think that's one of the, it actually, as Johnny was talking about, one of the advantages of, of Otsar Beitzin is that you actually get to fulfill the mitzvah of eating um, perot of the year of Shemitah, b'kdusha. Like, like, tusha, like that, that's actually a wonderful thing. So, to eat Just to clarify, is it a mitzvah to eat perot shvi'it? Is it b'kdusha? I think it's a key, there's a kiyum of something there. I, we need Johnny? our rabbinic expert, Johnny. There were some people who say that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, and I, and I think that's, that, the, right? I think that's the rule for everything in Shemitah. Yeah. There are some people who say that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying it's, there's something very miragesh about it. There's something very, there can be something very emotional about that. that you know, it's like a one, one in seven year opportunity. Um, you know, besides all the other ideological pieces that Johnny alluded to about, you know, um, so anyway, the, the other ideological piece is, yes, this year we are, my husband is much more comfortable relying on um, Hedja Mechira, and I think he also um, ideologically um, thinks that for whatever reason, which if you're interested I can share, um, this year he feels like, um, he said to me, I'll even tell you what he said, he said, you have to be the one to raise the famous article by Rav Lichtenstein called the tragedy of Shemitah. Oh. Ha tragedia shel ha Right? Apparently, when Avichazid first met Aliyah, this is an article he wrote. Um, none of the Israelis knew what tragedia was, right? Because they had not yet been acclimated to Avichazid's, you know, <laughs> English Hebrew words. Um, but that. Now really the whole country me. knows these words, you know. No. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, that idea that, like, we really don't have a perfect system, right? Let me say the fo- positive first. No, wait, wait, for no. You should paraphrase, explain Rav Lichtenstein's article before you. Okay, so Rav Lichtenstein's point is that, like, none of these solutions really um, mean that we're we're doing Shemitah the way Shemitah is meant to be done, right? There's a problem with every one of the solutions, with every one of the three solutions. Obviously, the issue with Yivul Nahri is that, you know, well, uh, I don't know, I guess you should leave Johnny to talk about the problems, but um, certainly there's <laughs> like an economic hardship that, 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 you, that you're kind of just, you know, cre- creating for the Israeli farmer. Well, the problem um, with Yivul Nahri that many complain, many say, is you are, you are, Supporting for the produce that you get, much of the produce is is procured from those who would uh, uh, would correct. advocate for Israel's there's, destruction. There's another problem with it, which is again, if you don't find a solution that's going to economically support the Israeli farmer, not only are they going to lose this year's income, but once you lose your place in the market, it's very hard to regain right, that place 100%. in the market. Right? That's like a, was a Corona issue, right? If the, if, if the flowers aren't going to be bought by by Europe in May, this May, where they're going to get another supplier, and that's going to be the end of that. So, so I, I don't know how true that is. I find, I'm actually quite skeptical of that in, the, in, in, a, in, a, in a world of international, immediate international shipping, where it's, okay, oh, there's so a market get, for you everything. You research. I, I like that, that to you requires evaluation. But I think there's a cost. There's a cost. You can't, it's not, it's sure, not a cost. viable. To, uh, without a doubt, okay. you're asking people not to, not to be supportive um, for you. Without okay. a doubt. Otsar by the way, also has its imperfections. Um, Otsar Beitzin is very specific, by the way. I, my husband explained this all to me before the podcast. It, you know, it applies. First of all, vegetables is spichen. It's just different than your fruits because it's, you know, there's a special gezeira on spichen, which again, I'll leave to Johnny to explain if he wants to go into the details. But but vegetables are annual, whereas fruits and grains are perennial. So Otsar Beitzin can end up being very, very limited. Um, and my husband also said that, that like, the, 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 um, you know, Johnny explained it sort of. It's like you're, you're not technically allowed to sell it. So the, again, it's a legal fiction that the Beitin is paying you for the labor. But once it's becoming so popularized, right, and it's coming into the supermarkets, the supermarkets are actually doing things like weighing it and really selling it, right? So the bigger oats our Beitin gets, the ironically, the more heavily it has to rely on the, the kind of 
flaws in it that also system, becomes a legal right? fiction yeah. essentially it becomes exactly so you have two legal fictions right and 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 so it becomes the, the, is, the, 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 the singular source which discusses something similar to it isn't what we have now meaning there's already significant adaptations to whatever's people you know discussed in a tosefta shvit what we do now isn't uh, reflective of the mi- minority um, presentation of what could be in terms of what might be a successful implementation of Otto Bettin. So, right. so there, there are various stretches in and various compromises in every one of these three models. Exactly. So, and Hedger Mechira, obviously, um, you're enabling, uh, you know, the economic viability of the of the farmers and the, the whole agricultural sector of the state of Israel, but the land is not resting. So this, there's, there's, there's no, sort Mali, of even more here. than that. Ideologically, we are the people that are in favor of settling the land of Israel. And now we're coming along and saying, even metaphorically, it's important to sell the land of Israel to a non-Jew. There's there's a there's a paradox there. Correct. There's a lot that so so the tragedy of Shemitah is that like if and again I would turn to either one of you to hear what you believe was the the fundamental purpose of Shemitah, right? But whichever way we're doing it, we're not achieving what the Torah wanted us to achieve um, when it created this mitzvah of 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 Shemitah in Eretz Yisrael. And there there is a tragedy there, right? At the same time, I. I, I, I I want to say the positive, which is there's something still very moving, right, about, as I said, eating the mitzvot of Tushat Shvi'id, or there was a video going around of the Shalavim farmers leaving their fields, right, with song and with dance and saying, right, so I don't want to only be negative and say there's only a tragedy here, you know, the the return to the state of Israel has enabled us to come closer to mitzvot that we we kind of had not not had access to for 2,000 years, and there's a beautiful piece of it, but the tragedy is, like with, with many other things, right? The same way if you'll go to, you know, um, the Kotel and the Minerva Kotel, on the one hand, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so close. But then you'll, you can also say, oh my gosh, I'm so far. Um, and so that's my feeling about, about Shvi, Shvi, that's my feeling this year about Shemitah. Johnny, you wanted to respond. So, so I, I certainly feel that too. And Rav Lichtenstein isn't the only who, who points out the flaws of every argument. Uh, interestingly, within the religious Zionist world, while many, although not all, institutions try to push and promote Otzel Bettin as being the closer, shall we say, to, the, to having that chush of Shemitah. Uh, many others make technical arguments saying, in fact, that's simply not the case. And there is basically two camps, which some which put Heta Mechira ahead of Otzel Bettin, the other. However, just on a, on a briefer side, I'm, I'm blessed to have at least a small garden around my house. And so that garden's left. Uh, and and uh, it's important to distinguish between we as a consumer nation. Hey, Johnny, you're allowed to mow the. You're allowed to attend the garden. You're allowed to mow the lawn. You're allowed to do that to, stuff. To, to a certain, the answer is to a certain measure. Main, there's there's a difference between maintenance and investment. Maintenance to a to a certain measure, if necessary, fine. Investment, no. Um, and, and so, when I kind of go out of my front door, and I know that I'm not going to be do, dealing with this stuff uh, for the next year. There is a sense, it's Schmitter. In fact, uh, in my neighborhood, which is a relatively new neighborhood, they're wanting to landscape a whole area. And we had a big public meeting recently, and they said, of course, we're not doing it this year because it's Schmitter. And just thinking, like local councils, they aren't doing certain things because of Schmitter. So true, the, um, the, the way in which we live, our, our demand and expectation of having easy access to certain produce means we're choosing between three imperfect solutions but equally true in the local communities many things are left because of the reverence 
of Shemitah and the observance of those laws. Okay, so I, I would add, first of all, I would totally agree with you. I think the, the most, I, I guess, fullest fulfillment of Shemitah for all of us is our gardens. Like, I have an etrog tree, and I really want it to, it's growing nicely now, and I want it to water it, but watering it, it's hard for me not to water it. It's really hard, because, but it's watering it is causing, I would water it to make it grow more. I want to add water, and I, I like, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. And, like, that's a struggle, but that's a cum of the mitzvah. So I, I think there, there is a cum of the mitzvah, when it comes to what I buy, I agree with Molly. I think that I feel like there's no good solution one way or the other. Like I used to be very fabrenta, like hetamichira as an idealist, as an ideology, and try to do otsar beitin. And even now, like you said, otsar beitin has just become another grocery store. So therefore, it's not really otsar beitin. And uh, and the idea that well, I don't want to eat yivul nachri. Like you have no idea where the cucumbers you got last year were from. You know what I'm saying? Like so much of our produce is imported from all these countries, from Turkey, from Gaza, from whatever, all the time. And nobody ever asks. And all of a sudden comes Shemitah. And I'm like, well, I don't want to take it from another, you know, from the enemies of Israel. When you worry about it the rest of the year, then you should worry about it, you know, that time. Um, And uh, I I think, so therefore we're just, uh, I I think you're right. Like we have the same attitude this year that it's, you know, I'm very comfortable eating Hetamichira and bring it into our house. I want to add two other points which I think are important. First one is you really want to solve this. The state of Israel could solve it easily. I'll give you an example. Uh, Molly, you worked in education, right? Do you have a sabbatical? Did you have a sabbatical when you worked uh, for the state of Israel in education? Well, well, yeah. If it was the state of Israel, they would have. Oh, right. You didn't work for the state of Israel. Every teacher, my wife works for Israel, state of Israel. Every teacher has what's called a Karen Hishtal They don't all go on sabbatical the same year. Wait, 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 one second. That's not the question. That's not the question. I'm just saying, how are you going to do this? The question is, can we as a society afford to subsidize the farmers to go on sabbatical? And the answer is, of course we could. We can afford it. We do it for teachers. Many people do it for a lot of other things. We just don't value it. So, I mean, if I was, if, theoretically, if the country wanted to, it's really, this is not an agricultural country anymore. When agriculture was a huge part of our economy, then that would be prohibitive. And it's like 3% or 5% of the economy. And of course, it's very important to maintain agriculture and everybody's in favor of that. Why can't we as a country decide we're going to do our Karen Ishtamud for every farmer and make sure they're not going to be rich, but, you know, like, let, let them have a living and they can go on vacation, not go on vacation, and then they do training and upgrade their equipment. And that'll be Shemitah and Israel values Shemitah. I know I'm speaking as a religious Jew, but it's not as crazy as you think. You know, it's, I don't think it's nearly as crazy as you think. It's a question of values. And if it's a value of the country, the country can afford it. If it's not a value of the country, then we probably can't afford it. That's one thing, and maybe we should, I know it's a pipe dream of mine, but that doesn't mean that that uh, shouldn't be something we should think about. The second thing I want to mention is, and this is something that's very, very painful, is that Shemitah, perhaps more than any other halakha, serves as a, as a halakha that causes incredible division in, the, in, in Israel. And I don't, I've had personal experience with this. There are communities, whole communities, because they're so makbir on Shemitah, uh, they consider anyone who eats hetamechira or brings hetamechira into their house to be totally treif. And I'm talking about Haredi communities. So if you have a Haredi cousin, because you keep hetamechira, that cousin, he doesn't, he doesn't even care what kind of meat you eat, but will never eat in your house and won't eat in any of your dishes because you eat hetem because of extreme piske halacha. And uh, I think that's something that is not talked about. And it's something that it definitely exists. And for whatever reason, 
Shemitah has taken on this proportion that it causes, it causes tremendous discord in families. And I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but it causes tremendous pain. More than other halacha, but it's really interesting. More than other, like, what kind of meat do you eat, or what kind of hachsherim do you use? For whatever reason, Shemitah is like that. And finally, I would say Shemitah, is, it causes a sense of confusion, because if you think about it, like, think about all the other halachot we keep. So there's settled halacha. Like, there's been a thousand years of halachic development, and shochan arach, and shutim, and, and people just like, you know, communities develop practices, and I'm a Sephardi, so I, I warm up soup on Shabbat, and I'm a Ashkenazi, I don't warm up soup on Shabbat. But here you have a whole body of halacha, and this I'm sure Johnny is going to have something to say about, that there's nothing settled. Because like, oh, you know, these rabbis came up with something a hundred years ago, which in terms of halacha is nothing. And uh, the solution of Otsar Beit, you know, we just, you know, we're pushing it this Shemitah. What other major halacha do we have in communities where it's like, uh, and basically we're being told to make decisions, what do you do? What do you do? This is the very idea. What does the Brafsky family do? Like in every other area of halacha life, you don't really choose. Like what do your fathers do? What did your parents do? What did your ancestors do? What did your community do? And here we're being asked to make choices, which I think is something that's interesting to think about and to study when we come to the Achav Shemitah. Johnny, I'd be curious about your, your thoughts on this issue if you have something to, to share. Well, I, I, I agree. It's kind of, it's as if the ground is shifting every seven years, meaning maybe each of us have, might have a slightly different view of Otabetin if the way in which it could be provided would be different to the way it was seven years ago. But seven years ago, I, don't, I, I was living in Yabinimen at the time. So you'd come uh, and you'd, you'd find there's like three rotten looking kind of cucumbers and you think, you know, thanks but no thanks because whatever they have, that's what they, they sell. You know, they, it's not on demand. That's I, I just want point. to tell you that my nephew, he works for the PR company that did their media campaign. And when he sent right. me their media campaign, he's like, how come people aren't registering? I said, you're doing it all wrong. You need home delivery. People love to get home delivered packages of produce. They get it for organic produce. He's like, they love the idea and they advertise the idea, but they're not equipped to do it. They, you have oh, to build an infrastructure. So interestingly, in my yeshuv, uh, one of the local rabbanim tried to arrange that. And a bunch of people said, you know, if it's going to come, why not? Right. Because That's how people they, would buy they, it. They liked enough the idea of Otzabet, and even if they halachically agree with Het Mechirad, if it's easy, why not? And then, it literally, just kind of around about Rosh Hashanah time, it fell through. Um, it's very hard to do logistically. Logistic. I imagine in and seven years we're going to see that. Otzabet, yeah. din, it, 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 you know, people like Rav Emin Cohen says, I believe that's the better halachic solution, but logistically it needs a lot of tmicha. Other people say, I disagree. On, on the ground, though, uh, it's kind of almost like an, a no-brainer, uh, unless you adopt Yivul Nachri, or even if you do, for that matter. So, so I agree, every seven years, you're not quite sure, even if you're comfortable with what you do, people are prepared to take a second look, um, uh, but, and often the solution is only kind of being figured out um, last minute. It, it is regrettable that people sometimes uh, uh, you know, weaponize um, what they do in terms of excluding others. Um, uh, I, and I think, unfortunately, those who do rarely have explored the sugya or the sugyot the way they should and simply they think that because I do this and you don't, I'm right and you're wrong, which is seen in many other areas too, but correctly, so, uh, you've, as you've correctly noted, uh, is also expressed in relation to Shemitah. Molly, you'll wrap it up for us. 
yeah, I, I just want to say two things. One is last Shemitah cycle, and I don't want to quote which Rav it was because I don't remember it exactly, but one of the Rabbinim of our community gave a Shkirav, um, all the halachot, and then he said, the one thing I want to say in our community is I want you all to eat in each other's houses. And I don't want you asking, what do you do, what do you do, what do you do? Um, even if he had a strong position about what he thought was correct, he said, in our community, I want a culture where people are, are eating at each other's houses. And I thought that was very, um, you know, kind of appropriate, like kind of noteworthy in, in light of what you're saying. And since I was the like, you know, negative voice before, now I'll just give the positive voice when you were talking about, you know, and I was like, well, we're not keeping Shemitah the way it was. And but you're right. Like, I hadn't thought about it in that light. When I was at a cousin in Yerushalayim six months ago, um, they were like, the amount of planting that is going on by Iriat Yerushalayim right now is insane because it's Shemitah next year. So they are planting trees all over Yerushalayim. And so people who lived in Yerushalayim felt Shemitah coming because um, the city, the municipality was just like parks were springing up all over the place so you did you do feel shemitah in the air in that sense somebody just posted i think it was ravioni rosenzweig um what, he was at the knesset today for some reason and he put, put on his facebook post a, a sign he said this sign really moves me and it was like a sign that said something like we're not watering this lawn or whatever it is because this year is shemitah right in front of the knesset something like that you can look up the post to see what it was so i i think again like and this i'll tie it to kind of my second second aspect of this is like we can look at the glass half empty part or we can as we always do on this podcast kind of say like we are living in this return to Eretz Yisrael and that comes with like you know Chavlei Mashiach if you want to even be that dramatic right it comes with with it's not easy but but these difficulties are are a sign of a work in progress and so all of these things, like the fact that we haven't quite yet fully figured it out, the fact that it's it's new to us, the fact that that like every seven years there's like a, a new angle, um, maybe we should view that right as as like yeah we we are at the we're at the beginning of something, but that you know and and, and beginnings are hard, but maybe we should celebrate the fact that we're at the beginning of something, and that that's really historically very inspiring. Undoubtedly, the fact that we're even just talking about Shmira, how we keep Shemitah, is a miracle in and of itself, and. Hopefully enough of a reason for institutions around the world to be supportive of Shemitah and to want to get involved in Shemitah and to learn about Shemitah and maybe even teach your students about Shemitah as well. All right, I want to thank Rabbi Nimali Dravsky, Rabbi Johnny Solomon. I want to thank all of our listeners. Oh, I forgot to mention also Shemitah that we mentioned. I don't know if I mentioned this. If you live in Israel and you have a gardener, this is the year to ask them to put in the patio that you've been putting off because the people, we don't think about them. The gardeners suffer a lot this year because there's a lot of work that they can't do. So keep your gardener in mind. Uh, if you live in Chutz uh, when you make Aliyah, you'll know what I mean. Uh, I want to thank my son, Petach Espolta, for our music, and perhaps our bumper music. What do you call it? Uh, what, do you, what do we call it? Sting, that? a sting. Sting? That's apparently what it's I called, a sting. A, a, yeah, a like, no. ooh. Ah, no I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking like a little like um, intro music for like, like a bumper music. Uh, whatever, it doesn't matter. I want to thank you for our music. I want to thank all of you for sharing this podcast, for commenting. Send us your messages and your comments. And... Hopefully we'll share it on the air. Have a great week, everybody.